Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. Hey ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to this next episode in the Squash Mind podcast series. I have got an absolute giant of the game here today. We've just had such a fun chat uh, investigating so many different angles and stories and reliving some of the, the golden era, the golden age of squash, you might call it. I'm lucky enough to have Ross Norman on the show today. As a child growing up, um, I had a few of his videos. I used to watch him play, used to watch him compete. And, you know, besides Jahangir Khan, who was dominating the game and arguably classed as one of the greatest players of all time, and Ross says this in the chat, he was he was the man. He was number two in the world. He was the one nipping on the tails of Jahangir Khan. Also had to compete with Janja Khan when Janja came along. And very famously, Ross Norman defeated Jahangir Khan in the 1986 World Open final. Became famous because... Um, there was a streak of five years. Jahanga hadn't lost to anyone for five years. It hardly dropped the game to anyone for five years. And it was the famous 555 wins. Um, I think it, at one point it still might be. It's classed as one of the greatest streaks and greatest runs in sporting history. And my guest on the show today, Ross Norman, is the man who stopped him in his tracks. So we relive that tournament. We go through it piece by piece, bit by bit, get inside his mind, get inside his head of what was happening and the thoughts and the dialogue, you know, right on the cusp of, of beating one of the greats of the game. And it's just such a, such a fun chat. You can, you can see he gets animated and highlights and highlighted and enjoys reliving it. And yeah, our, our talk is wide ranging. It's broad. And again, I was getting really curious. I was trying to unpack so many of the mental side or mental state of his game that that he used to exhibit and he was known as one of the toughest players out there and for anyone listening I think you can take a, a lot of lessons from this I think he uses the word tenacity a lot he classes himself as a very tenacious player and we get into the discussion of is this built in is this an, an environment do you is it a learned behavior and yeah we just we relive some really old times and good times really old times that sounds a bit harsh but uh you know from from the 80s um through to his retirement in 1995 
and I was just sitting there as an absolute fan and in in awe of him um massively respected in the game I used to read the magazines and have the books of Ross Norman and how he would go about his business and how he was you know like I said the world number two and, and world champion in 1986 so a real treat for me uh, just something that I feel honored to be able to do on this platform um, using these podcasts to get to speak to guests that I have admired and followed over the years and by the end of it feel feel like I know the person that much better that much more intimately getting into the the real weeds around themselves their mind how they operate and how they tick so I hope you enjoy this as much as I did and any of the young players out there that have not heard of Ross Norman Hopefully after this, you will be as inspired hearing from him as I was when I was a youngster. So enjoy the chat and please welcome Ross Norman. Ross Norman, welcome to the next episode of the Squash Mind podcast series. I am super honored to have you here today. How, how are you getting on? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, considering the circumstances, Jesse. Yeah, all good. All good. Good. Yeah. No, we, we've had it. We've had a few chats. Maybe I reached out to you about ten or so days ago. We had a good chat on the phone. We had a bit of a chat before. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're you're in a pretty good place and things are going well. And yeah, really looking forward to uh, to having this chat with you. Um, like I was saying to you before, and uh, hopefully it's not embarrassing anything. But I was a huge fan as a kid. I watched your videos growing up in Africa. So yeah, for me to have this this time with you is is just really special. So thank you for carving out a bit of time to have this chat and but I think a, a real cool place to start would be um to get the listeners to know what you've been doing both in and out of squash since your retirement in 1995. Okay so um yes 1995 um I uh just very briefly uh invested in a business about 18 months before uh in 1993 um before I uh, retired in 95 in a career business, and uh, I went to work there. I was um, one of the directors there, and uh, and really enjoyed it. It, it was a huge uh, learning curve for me uh, because really all I'd known in my life up to that stage was was squash, and um, it, it taught me a lot of stuff about business, you know. And uh, that lasted seven years, and um, I left then, and then uh, I built up a little bit of a well small property portfolio. So I decided to work on that, um, learn the sort of maintenance side, learn the management side, uh, equally important. And um, I've been pretty much doing that uh, since then. So, uh, and we're saying before, you know, I just, I thoroughly enjoy it. I like every, pretty much every aspect of the job. Sure, you get some uh, ups and downs with it, uh, particularly when you're dealing with, with student-lets. But um, no, look, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy the job. Yeah, and and before we were chatting, yes, you 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 became quite animated qu pretty quickly about your job, which is brilliant to find that passion. And I think when we first touched base, uh, maybe ten days or so ago on the phone, um, I think I asked you the question. I, I want to ask you it now. Um, you you dabbled into this coaching scene, and obviously being such a, a legend of the game and and playing at the highest level you know, for you to give, not give back to the end, but, but impart your knowledge. Could you talk about what you did in regard to coaching and how that aspect worked once you'd retired? Yeah. So um, once I finished at the Curry business, I um, uh, spoke to my good friend, Danny Lee over at St. George's Hill and uh, talked about coaching. And he said, yeah, sure. Um, there will be a place here for you. Uh, you've just got to obviously do the um, do the coaching courses and get qualified, which I did, and uh, and then went coaching there. I must have coached at St George's Hill for about 
I guess, 18 months. And, um, you know, I came to the conclusion at the end of it that um, uh, coaching wasn't really for me for, for, for a number of reasons, but I found that I could give, um, uh, um, uh, I could give more information to someone and help them along their careers a lot better off court mm. than I could really sort of on court. Um, I just found that, you know, and I was being honest with myself, I wasn't passionate enough about uh, coaching. Um, and although that seems the natural progression after you finish playing squash to go coaching, um, that I just, for some reason, I just, um, I, I didn't not enjoy it, but I didn't really, really enjoy it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this for a full-time job, I really need to enjoy it. And I wasn't. So uh, awesome. I decided that, um, you know, I just sort of uh, um, I stopped coaching and just really just, um, I, you know, just talk to guys, you know, talk to guys who are thinking about joining the circuit or who were on the circuit and just sort of impart some, some advice from experience, you know, mm. from, from what I'd uh, been through. Yeah, and, and I again massively respect that. There's no there's no point doing something that you're not passionate about or you can't really get into, or you know, it's just not something that energizes you. So yeah, totally get that. And you know, the conversations you're having with people, like you said, you 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 knew yourself well, you had that, you know, self-awareness to go, hey, it's not quite for me, and I'm fine with it, but I could be stronger in other areas. Um, but I probably want to rewind quite a bit now and, and have a, a little chat about um, could you paint a picture of you know your early sporting memories and growing up in New Zealand? How 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 was this for you? Well, it's all started really in in a place called Wutianga, which is a very, very small town, a population of about 900 people. Um, coastal resort, more of a holiday resort. Um, my dad built some squash courts, uh, and with nothing else to do in winter on a on a holiday resort, you tend to want to uh, uh, just you know get out and play squash. So I played squash. Uh, if I wasn't at school, I was down the squash club, and that's how, kind of how it all started. Um, and then as a kid, I sort of started playing tournaments. Realized you know I was good at it, and you don't know why. You don't question it at that age, but you just go through and you play tournaments and you win them. And that just went through the junior ranks right up until I was sort of 18. And then the New Zealand Squash Rackets Association, um, today it's uh, Squash New Zealand, um, uh, very, very proactive association, probably one of the most or the most proactive uh, association in the world at that time, I, I, I believe. Um, uh, got about three young guys together, uh, sent them over to Europe for the season, October through to March to play as many tournaments as they possibly can could and uh, gain as much experience as they could and then head back to New Zealand. Of course, we all came back um, in March for the start of the New Zealand season. Um, much, much improved players, much fitter, uh, much more experienced, much stronger, um, just different players completely. And um, and that's the sort of thing that, uh, that, that, that was the trip that really sort of uh, made me realise this is what I want to do for the next 10 or 15 years. That's so cool. Okay, so there's a couple of things to unpack here straight away. <laughs> Firstly, why did your dad build a couple of squash scores? What was what was the purpose behind that? Well, he was a um, he was a pilot in in those days. So moving sort of cargo and passengers from Woodyanga over to mainly Auckland, um, and he'd sometimes in winter just do the one flight. So he'd have to wait all day there. And I think someone asked him if he'd like to go and have a game of squash. He didn't know what what a squash court looked like. So he went off and had a game of squash and was absolutely bowled over by the sport. Uh, decided uh, a great thing for Woodyanga, for all the tourists that come down and, and the residents in, in winter, um, would be to have some squash courts there. So he, along with another guy, built the squash courts and um, 
uh, it proved pretty successful. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, with your dad owning it, it doesn't cost you anything to go and play. So um, I, I just basically used to live down there. And, uh, you know, it's very little, it's little wonder that I, uh, you know, I ended up hitting quite a good squash ball because of that. Yeah. And, and again, I get fascinated with these stories. And, and there's a book called The Talent Code, where the guy investigates talent hotbeds and very similar stories to what happened there, like a little bit of a passion and just the exposure to the certain sport. And then it's, it's, it's a mate's thing. And it doesn't even, like you said, you, you were just playing tournaments and, you know, you were good, but you didn't really maybe investigate why you were good. You just, you just did it because you loved it. And so many great stories of that happening. And, and then talk to me about, obviously, New Zealand, rugby, front and center, cricket, massive sport. Where were you in that? Because was there, was there not a pressure to play rugby and cricket and perform at that? But how come rugby and cricket maybe didn't feature, say, as much as squash? Um, well, squash back in those days was, um, it was, wasn't a big sport. Um, it was a minority, whether Tim, or minority sport. Um, I mean, in cricket um, and sailing and, and, and rugby, particularly rugby, I mean, they were sort of world leaders, really, um, uh, or, or, you know, um, competing with the world's best. In squash, I think before um, Bruce Brownlee came along, who was four years older than me, um, he was the first guy that really made inroads into getting New Zealand on the map in terms of squash. He won the British Amateur, um, the East Devon Amateur in those days, uh, Amateur tournament and um, he won that and that really put uh, New Zealand on the map and uh, really created uh, a lot of interest in squash in New Zealand and of course we were the sort of byproduct of that we followed uh, we thought well if, if he can do it maybe we can do it we'll all do it as well yeah. uh, and there were a whole bunch of younger guys behind him that were just um, wanting to do what he did mm. um, and so uh, that raised the profile of squash uh, a lot of squash in New Zealand um, and then of course in in the early to mid eighties, um, uh, Susan Boy came along who, um, ended up winning the world champs, I think about seven times. Um, and, uh, you know, phenomenal figure in squash. And, uh, um, she really did, um, put, uh, squash, uh, on the map in New Zealand. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and there was one stage there, I think in 1986, uh, where New Zealand, for the for the size and population of the country, we had two world champions in the same sport at the same time, and wow. um, that's uh, that's a remarkable uh, you know achievement is, for, for New is. Zealand. And yeah. well, it reflects obviously the you know the, the All Blacks and you know the the amount of people that are playing in New Zealand, but but the extraordinary results and to have two squash players pretty much emulate or even before the Kiwis became such a dominant force, the All Blacks, that, that, that's brilliant. And was there much profile for you guys over there when, when you, when both of you were world champions at that point? Yeah, there was, um, uh, you know, the press were fantastic. Um, and anytime there was a New Zealand open on, um, you know, TV would obviously cover it. And TV in those days was really hard to secure, you know, secure sort of for um, even an hour on a Sunday afternoon anywhere in the world. Um, but uh, TV covered it um, mainly because, you know, at the time I was, I was sort of hanging around the sort of number two and number three place in the world. And Susan was number one um, that uh, they, they, they gave us that um, airtime and um, no, they, they promoted it really well. So uh, it, it became quite a significant sport in New Zealand back in the eighties. 
Lovely. Oh, well, great to hear that there was that that influence, you know, that spark of, of an older person and how it filters down, which which is great. And uh, can you tell me about the so you went on tour with two other guys, so three of you from New Zealand going to Europe. How old were you at the point? Was it a couple of seasons? And can you talk about that experience and and, and what other sparks it might have lit when you did go back Well, went to Europe and then came back? Sure. Well, I was 18 at the time, so I was still a junior. Um, and uh, the two guys I went over with, one was uh, uh, Rod Hayes um, and uh, Howard Brune, who was a little bit older. He was coming probably to the end of his career, but um, they invested um, an airfare in all three of us. Um, we arrived over here for, for the whole season. Um, and as a junior, um, they suggested to me that I should play a few junior tournaments first, you know, just to get the maybe hopefully a few wins under my belt, which I did, and then play as many senior tournaments. So going from October through to uh, March, I think I would have played a tournament, including the Christmas and New Year period, every week, every week. Amazing. So, um, you know, what's that? Probably 24 tournaments, 20 yeah. to 24 tournaments, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it was just every sort of Thursday or Friday, right through to the Sunday night. Um, and that, 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 that for me was the big springboard into do I want to play this uh, professionally or do I just want to sort of um, stay as an amateur and just enjoy the travel and then go back to New Zealand. But uh, yeah. I really, really thoroughly enjoyed that time. Um, we're over here for, like I say, the, the first year as a junior for six months. Um, and, you know, at a, as an 18 year old, it's a big world. When you step outside New Zealand, um, it's a big world out there. And uh, traveling around Europe was just phenomenal. It was just eye opening. And, um, and you get to play squash. Mm. Uh, you know, some of these countries and it's just, you go back with a lot of memories um, and I can still remember them fairly, you know, quite vividly and, uh, um, and enjoyable as well. It was just a fantastic trip. Um, and with us going back there and, and for the rest of New Zealand to see us improve so much, um, I think that um, uh, excited a lot of people, a lot of people my age and, and, and a bit younger to, to do what, emulate what we've done. Um, now, this went on for three years while I was an amateur. And uh, so they sent me again when I was um, 19, along with two other guys, Brian Barnett and Craig Blackwood. And um, uh, we came over and then we went back, very much different players again, even better. And so it was really raising the profile of, of squash in New Zealand. Um, Amazing. And then uh, at uh, when I just turned 20, they offered, well, not when I was still 19, they offered me another trip over. And I said, look, I will be turning pro when I, when I go because the game was going to go open. And I think it was in about um, May of uh, 1980. Um, I turned pro just before that. And um, I said, look, I may not be back for a while, but they were still happy to sort of see my airfare to come over. Really? And uh, I turned pro in January 1980. And uh, yeah, that was it. Wow, that is, I love the way you paint the pictures about that. And what great opportunities, you know, like being sent and, you know, like you said, it, it sounded like it really created that spark, that ignition in your life and, and your direction. And it sounds like pretty soon you made up your mind, you were, you were going pro, which, which was in hindsight, a great decision. And can you talk about those young first days of being a pro? So when you decided to jump in and, you know, move to the UK, um, how, how did you go about that? Where were you based? What, what was the training environment like? Can you paint a picture of, of that, that young Ross Norman as a pro? Sure. Well, when I, I was, I think, a ranked number two amateur in the world at that stage uh, when I turned pro. So that was quite a good springboard uh, into the pro ranks. Um, 
but my God, um, you know, amateur squash and pro squash were just two different games at that stage. And um, uh, I learned, I learned a lot. I think within 12 months, I'd got into about, I think it was round and out number 16 in the world. So I was pretty happy with that, which is the great cutoff point for any tournament, any 32 draw tournament. If you're on the top 16, that means in the first round, you're going to play someone from 17 through to 32, including qualifiers. Um, and that was kind of almost an umbrella to keep you in that 16s and then to sort of push on from there. But um, uh, yeah, my experience, it was, I thought I was doing hard work before that as an amateur. The workload probably increased uh, by double. And, um, you know, we, I just lived and breathed, breathed and ate and slept squash. You know, um, that was my life. Nothing else uh, existed. And I think you had to take that attitude, you know, if you were going to do it as a job, um, you couldn't do it half-heartedly. You couldn't sort of dip your toe in the water. You have to get right in uh, amongst it and and go to these places and look at these uh, the top pros, you know, the likes of Jeff Hunt and Saman and, and Hitty and uh, Moe Buller and, uh, and learn from these guys. And, um, uh, you know, it was a huge, huge learning curve. So uh, these days, of course, there's no amateurs around. And so you just... You go straight from juniors um, into the pro ranks, and that is uh, that's quite uh, quite tough. But uh, yeah, that, that that is quite a leap, and and you do see a lot of people either not taking that leap because it's it's too big of a chasm to to jump, or if they do it, they you know give them a year or two, and and they might fade out, which is not necessarily a good thing for our sport. But were you based in one area? Did you have a coach? How, how did how did the training work in those young days um, when you when you first got to the UK? Yeah, so when I first got to the UK as an 18-year-old, I had one, uh, I had two names and one address. Um, and that was a guy who was the sports uh, club manager at Dolphin Square in London. Um, he was over in New Zealand and uh, I was training with the New Zealand team at the time, even though I wasn't in it. And, uh, and he came along and said, look, if you come out to the UK, you're welcome to come and play at Dolphin Square. So I kept that address and his name. Um, Went along there. That was the first stop from Heathrow. Uh, caught a bus in Victoria and uh, went down there. Found a B&B just around the corner. And so I used to base myself out of Dolphin Square. And soon, and that pretty much in no time at all, they adopted me. And um, uh, it was great. Uh, and in fact, they gave me a job as a swimming pool attendant. Um, and, uh, you know, for the days that I wasn't playing, well, I wasn't competing anyway. I still got, had a chance to train. But, uh yeah, so most of the day I was, I was looking after, um, you know, uh, being in charge of the swimming pool along with one other guy. Um, and so I lived around the corner, obviously, in a B&B. And, um, yeah, that was my life. Amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's like obviously way before the days of just sending someone a quick WhatsApp saying I'm coming to the UK and sorting things out while you're in New Zealand. It's like you just you just literally threw yourself into into UK and were like, I'm going to kind of make it up as I go along. And and yeah, you just it's an expression I like to use a lot. It's, it, you know, uh, grow wings as you fall. So you jump off a building, grow wings, basically learn on your feet. And, and dude, it sounds like you just immerse yourself in that pretty quickly. Yeah, and and you know that was it's it's a sink or swim scenario, isn't it? And uh, you know for the ones that sink, uh, we're never going to make it anyway. But um, you do, you learn to swim. Most people do, and they learn to swim. Um, one guy that did really help me was um, he was uh, secretary of the Squash Rack Association, and that was Andrew Shelley. Mm. And so that was the first port of, port of call actually, and, uh, and to the offices of the SRA. And you go along and you meet Andrew, and you'd uh, give him your itinerary and uh, he would look through and say yeah we can enter in all these tournaments he was fantastic um and uh he helped all the foreign players that used to come over and uh, spend, base themselves in the uk for the uh, for the english squash season 
Mm. Um, yeah, so it was pretty exciting in those days. But uh, God, I think if I, um, you know, uh, when my kids were 18, I'm not sure I'd send them across the other side of the world with just one address and one one name and get them to get on with it, you know. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, you learn and you learn fast. And uh, and that's that's part of what defines you, you know. Um, Completely. Uh, yeah. You're carving, you're carving your own destiny and your path and you, and you have to learn. And just on Andrew Shelley, yeah, like I... I I say, unfortunately, only only was able to deal with him in a very small capability. But the bit I dealt with him, man, that that guy went above and beyond anything I could ever ask. I had an experience where I I my flights were weird coming back from a tournament, and I had to fly via Qatar back to the UK. It was a tournament in Kuwait via Qatar, UK. But I didn't realize that you needed a special type of visa in Qatar, even if you were in transit. And yeah, I got there and they weren't going to let me on the plane back to the UK. And Andrew Shelley at the time was, was helped me massively, you know, a phone call to him. And yeah, again, he just didn't have to do any of this, but it was late at night in the UK. So hearing you talk about Andrew Shelley in, in, in good terms on my very small experience, and I and dealt with him a couple of times since, just, just a real good guy. And, and yeah, we need more people like that in squash, don't we? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and for those who don't know, he's just been awarded an MBE. So, uh, you know, well-deserved um, accolade and, uh, um, you know, he um, deserves every bit of it. You know, he, he's, uh, he's done well. He's done a lot for squash uh, in the UK and around the world. Mm. Um, yeah, well-deserving. Yeah. Well, what one person I'm just literally going to scribble onto my list of, of one of the interviews. I want to get him on this platform and have a chat with him at some point. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit now. Um, you know, I think it was quite common knowledge that you had a, a really difficult parachute accident. Um, it was almost a career-ending one. Could you relive what happened with this parachute injury? And, and actually, when I've heard some stuff around what you've talked about, it was actually a catalyst for you having that injury. Could, could you relive that for us, please? Yeah, so that was back in 1983. For some reason, you know, you, you do have childhood memories and you, you, you know, stuff stays in your head from when you're a child. And as I said earlier, my dad was a pilot and I used to go up with him. Um, so he used to do everything. He used to cart sort of cargo around, passengers around. Um, he used to take skydivers and parachutists up, uh, take the door off the, the big Cessna. Uh, he used to fly and um, I used to sit up there and watch these guys bail out and uh, land and it all looked pretty good. So I used to see it from the air and then on the ground, I'd see them bail out and land. And I just thought, wow, that looks really cool. <laughs> um, it was in the summer of 1983 where I thought, well, you know, I've got, I've got, there's no tournaments for a couple of months. I think I'll try this uh, parachuting, <laughs> which wasn't in retrospect, a, a hell of a good idea. Um, and uh, we, I did the course, the weekend course, went up and jumped and I landed badly. Um, I won't go into details, but of how it happened. But uh, yeah, I just basically landed badly, and uh, my knee opened up. Uh, my left knee opened up like an egg, the way it actually hit, and uh, <clears throat> egg being cracked. And um, I went to hospital, and they put it in uh, plaster. Um, about two weeks after that, I said, "Look, there's something wrong inside the knee. It's not just um, they 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 X-rayed it, and uh, uh, they said it wasn't fractured or broken. <clears throat> Excuse me, and so." Um, uh, I asked them to take it off after two weeks and they wouldn't. So I cut the thing off myself, went and saw a physiotherapist, uh, Vivian Grisogano, who was absolutely fantastic. Um, she had uh, contacts in uh, the London Hospital in Whitechapel. And so, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and I went along and saw them and they just said, no, uh, you've got a few ligaments that have detached inside your knee and you need an operation. So uh, I thought, you know, they said to me, I'll, I'll, I'll be in there for probably 
three days and I'll come out with plaster and then I'll be home again. So uh, I went in for the operation and um, that was performed by a guy called Dr. John King, who was a leading orthopedic surgeon at that stage um, in London hospital. And uh, he used to lecture around the world. So I wasn't in, I was in very, very good hands. Um, he, um, I woke up um, having said, I'd be in hospital for three days and I'd wake up in plaster. I wasn't in plaster. I was in traction and I didn't even know what traction was in those days. Um, and I started to sort of panic thinking that actually done the wrong operation. They've got me mixed up with somebody else and they've done the wrong operation. Uh, someone then came along and sort of said, look, we changed our mind. Um, he was the assistant surgeon said, we changed our mind to give you your best chance of ever playing squash again. We're going to put you in traction for six or seven weeks, um, and not in plaster. And then you'll have a brace. So you're not going to be in here for three days. You're going to be here for seven weeks. Um, and that was a real uh, tough uh, bit of pill to swallow. Um, I, at that stage, I think I was about 23. And uh, the thought of sitting in hospital in traction, so you can either lie down or sit up. And that's all you could do for seven weeks. Um, it was that, that, that was a jail sentence for me. Um, but I got through it. And uh, they let me out after seven weeks with a brace. And uh, I sort of had to sort of do back to Vivian, see Vivian Grisogano again. Um, and... Uh, and just do recuperative exercises, trying to get back in. Uh, I did mention when I was in traction that uh, I was getting invitations from Egypt at that time to play tournaments in October, November. And I said to them, what do you think? Do you think I'll be ready? And they just said, look, forget about playing squash. We're just trying to get you to walk without having a wow. permanent limp. Wow. And when they said that, I thought, wow, this is serious. You know, mm -hmm. this is really serious. So, um, yeah, I ended up uh, back on court about four months later, five months later, just very, very um uh controlled movement on a squash court just to get that back nothing no surprises just a bit of boasting and driving and mm. uh you know uh that no no games mm. um and then building the muscles obviously around the knee the whole time trying to get back into it um and uh yeah i did um went off to a tournament in brazil um and won that um and uh that was my first win for sort of I don't know nine months or first tournament for about nine yeah. months and uh, just pleased to get back on court and yeah. pleased to just compete again and, mm. and win again. But as you say, Jesse, you know that that really was the catalyst. That was that was the 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 the, the switch that got flicked. You know, all that time in hospital, I thought to myself, what am I doing? I was happy sitting at sort of six, seven, eight in the world, um, earning good money, um, had my house, my car, um, and money in the bank, and I just thought, wow, life's great. Um, but this really made me thought, look, you know, can't do this forever. You're either going to go forwards or go backwards. It's hard to stay still in sport. And, uh, you know, you've got to choose one. So uh, that really did uh, do it for me. It gave me a lot of time to think and a lot of time to sort of question what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and really, that was the start of my sort of um, trek to mm -hmm. try and get up to, um, you know, somewhere near the top of the world anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it sounds like by accident, obviously, that it was some enforced mental training for yourself. You know, you're having to be stationary for six or seven mm -hmm. weeks. You have your thoughts, you're with your thoughts, and you could take a couple of parts and that. And yeah, it sounds like, you know, mentally toughness, you had to get through that injury. Um, I can imagine there was a bit of mental toughness in the rehab stage as well, in, in having to go through the slow process, knowing the, the level of athleticism you had. 
but then maybe the, the mental toughness and the resilience to perform and, and get to, you know, world number two and, and, and win a, win a world title. So yeah, it sounds like it was a, a quite an interesting little bit, not that you'd ever wish this upon someone, but maybe like you said, in your words, the catalyst to, to springboard you to those, those, those high, high um, statuses in the games. And I, I'm, I'm interested, which leads me into my next question is how was it playing in the era you played in, you know, alongside Jahanga Khan, what players come to mind who were mentally tough that you had to compete with? Okay. Oh, there was, um, there was quite a few in those days. <laughs> um, wow. Well, where do you start? You know, uh, from the top uh, down, probably, uh, well, Jahangir, he was the most formidable guy I've ever played against. And then there was Janshir, um, when uh, sort of the late eighties, early nineties, uh, mid nineties. Um, then you had a whole bunch of Australian guys. You had Chris Dittmar, Rodney Martin, Brett Martin, um, Chris Robertson, mm-hmm. uh, Tristan Nancaro, a lot of those, just a whole bunch of those guys. Um, you know, you had Gwaine Bryars, you had Phil Kenyon. Um, yeah, or just a <clears throat> whole lot of really good players. Um, and, and just on that, this might help expand a little bit. You you do say, and I read that you said, Jahanga used to break people mentally. So two parts of the question. Can you expand on, on what that means? And secondly, in regard to you, do you think you had that skill against others around you? So, so does that make sense, what I'm asking? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I saw Jahanga break a few guys, one in particular, it was Gamala Wad. Sadly, he's not with us anymore. But um, I, the, the battles those two used to have, used to, as a spectator, used to bring a tear to your eye, you know. <laughs> um, God, they were tough and they were hard. And Jan, uh, uh, Gamal used to throw everything at Jan, Jahangir. <clears throat> and it didn't make it easy for Jahangir either. Um, you know, the best player in the world, he still had to work and use everything he had to beat Gamal. But this, I saw four or five epic battles between them. Gamal after that was not the same squash player. Um, really? it, it sort of broke him. Yeah. Um, and uh, he took the attitude of one day I'll get him. Um, if I keep at him the whole time, which was, which was basically my mantra that you've got to keep, keep going at someone. Um, but he obviously didn't want anything more to do with the long, hard battles he had had. Um, I think one stage there in 1980. Three, I think it was in Chichester. The two played and um, Jahangir won in four sets. And I think it was about two hours 45. Um, and the score told the whole story as well. J- 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 um, Gamal won the first uh, nine, five or something. And then Jahangir won the next three, um, almost down to two points in the last game. But that match went for an hour 45. Um, sorry, two hours forty-five. Yeah, yeah. Which is enough yeah to, you on, know, on that, on that score line is interesting yeah. because you'd kind of think, well, you know, I think it's been beaten now, but at the time it was the longest uh, match in history. But yeah, yeah, the score line, you know, you look at that and go, well, that that could be like a forty-five minute three-one. But you know, it just sounds like the battle was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was the difference between the makeup of the two guys was that Gamal sort of pushed four or five big, big matches from. Jahangir didn't win any, um, and then uh, and then broke him, and then of course Jahangir just powered on. Probably even became a better player from those matches uh, mm. after that, and just powered on and uh, and became even better. Mm. Um, but yes, I mean that for, for me though, the second part of your question, I don't know. I don't think you know. I think <laughs> unlike Jahangir, people who went on against me obviously thought they that you know they had it. A chance to beat me obviously when i was number sitting at number two in the world um 
yeah, people were going to, um, uh, they were out to beat me. Of course they were. Um, whereas I saw it so many times where, you know, these guys, would, some guys would front up against Jahangir and, um, ah, you know, uh, give it a go for the first game. And when they got beaten 9-2 in that game, they just sort of throw the towel in or not try too hard or, you know, there's a foregone conclusion for the result. Mm. And so, um, you know, that's made it hard when you're playing a, a, a tournament that, on the other side of the draw, you would get through the final and you had to really work hard to get there. Mm. Jahanga got there quite often, uh, quite quite often, um, um, you know, st still feeling fairly fresh when he got to the final. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, but no, I didn't have that same effect that, <laughs> on oh, people well. that Jahanga had on. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe, uh, may, maybe, maybe under undervaluing yourself. But yeah, I, I know what you mean in a way because I think you also alluded to the fact that part of you there, there was maybe a bit of an acceptance that Jahanga you know is and was the greatest player that that the game's ever seen and I don't know did, did, can you expand on that idea where you might have to accept you might never be world number one so and we know we won a world title and I, I don't want to get into that in a moment but how did you go about that acceptance phase and and do you think that actually helped you as a player to to accept where you were at in regard to where Jahanga was at as well? Yeah, well, I, was, I, I believe that he was the greatest player of all time. Um, uh, Jantier, probably a close second. Um, and then the list continues after that. Um, but when you realise, and the press interviews you do, one of the questions that came up quite a lot was, what is it like playing with probably the best player that's, uh, that, that squash has ever produced? Um, then you realise that... Um, you know, being number two in the world isn't such a bad thing. Um, and that you've, you've done probably the best you can do. Um, uh, you've just got to uh, keep, keep trying, you know, and one day you might just, you might just do it. But um, yeah, I mean, look, there would have been a lot more world champions, uh, world squash champions in this world without uh, Jahangir around. He sort of, uh, he sort of got a monopoly, him and Janchia really, uh, between them, I think they probably won about 14 world open titles in in the space of about 16 years you know yeah green, um, green so uh, yeah so it, it was no mean sort of feat being number two uh, mm. in the world when when you've got a guy like Jahangir at number one mm. no totally and, and like I said it's 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 remarkable what they did but equally so remarkable where you were at what you got to you know carved your name into the into the squash history books uh, in, in a great way and that brings me on to you know arguably what a lot of people like to talk about uh, that world open title that's you know the, the the ending of Jahangir Khan and I hope you're okay could we go through that that tournament maybe a little bit in detail and not like getting to the match of course but the whole build up to the tournament and then you know winning that final match could, could you paint a bit of a picture for us and, and relive it for us please sure yeah so that was in November 1986 um, I'd been doing really well up till then, winning most tournaments that Jahangir hadn't, um, uh, didn't enter in. Um, I sort of won those back in half of 85, I think, and, and most of 86. Um, apart from the two tournaments before the World Open, ironically, uh, that was the US Open um, in Houston in that year. And that's when Stuart Davenport, the current world number three, um, uh, beat me in the final. And then in the Canadian Open, the following tournament, the tournament preceding the World Open, um, I got I lost in the quarters to Hedy Jahan, and I hadn't lost in the quarters for, oh, for probably years before that. 
And so I just started to, everyone started to obviously question, including myself, um, you know, how I was, how I was going to front up for the world open. But that was a kind of bit of a, bit of a hmm, reminder of, uh, you know, a, a sort of a kickstart, if you like, um, into the world open. And um, yeah, I went into it as the number two seed. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, got through the rounds, um, played and obviously got to the final with Jahangir again. How were those um, early rounds out of interest? Was there, was there seeds of doubt in those early rounds or how did you, how did you go right? We're in the world open, obviously going for the title. Can you talk us through your mindset in those early rounds, building into maybe the idea you might play Jahangir in the final? Yeah. Okay. So I started, um, not that well. I think on my first match, uh, was, I think against a guy called Steve Baldich. Um, and I won in five, uh, convincing in the fifth, but, um, it still in five, it was five sets and then seemed to get better as the tournament went, went on. Um, uh, I played, um, uh, Gwaine Briars in the quarters. Um, I think that was three love. I then played uh, Chris Robertson in a long, hard match in the semifinals. That went for about, I think it was between an hour 45 and an hour 50, which oh. is not the sort of match you want um, when you're trying to get into the, you know, playing the next day in the in the final. Yeah. Um, and that was a tough game. Uh, Chris was coming up through the ranks at that stage. He'd just beaten Stuart Davenport in the quarters to make the semis. Um, and he was a tough opponent. And uh, like I say, um, gave me a, a, a really tough ride. Um, on the other side of the draw, Jahangir had just played uh, Chris Dittmar to get in the final mm -hmm. and he had dropped the game. Chris, you know, um, it's not surprisingly he didn't uh, get a game or, or, or even two games or even win it. Um, he was uh, he was coming back from injury and he had actually had to qualify for that tournament, came right through, through to the semis, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think was a first ever uh, and um uh, took a game off Jahangir. And that was the big news that day was that uh, Jahangir had actually dropped a game. So, uh, yeah, so I beat Chris and he beat yeah. uh, Chris Dittmar. Um, so, I beat Chris Robertson. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm so curious to understand how was your narrative in your head at that point? So you, you've won the semifinal, you've got through, you know, tough maybe first round, a five-setter, bit of a slog in the semifinal. What what story was going on in your mind at that point? Now you you know you're about to enter court with Jahangir, and can you can you live through that with us? Yeah, well, I sort of um, the minute I finished my semi final, there, there's obviously the press conference afterwards, the shower, and then the uh, ride back to the hotel, and uh, the whole time I was thinking about the final. Was uh, I thought you know I'm I'm, I'm not exhausted, but um, I could have done without that tough four setter and the semi. Um, now, if you rewind sort of four or five months, I played Jahangir that year in the final of the Spanish Open. Um, and I think I got beaten nine love, nine, two, nine love, something like that. I mean, he killed me. He absolutely killed me. And I just thought I don't want for a World Open final for that to be repeated. You know, um, it was hard to know how, uh, not how well or how badly I was going to play. I knew how I was going to play, but um what effect that would have on, on, on Jahangir, you know, playing him. Um, he had picked and chosen his tournaments that year. So um, uh, he had, um, I think he played the Canadian Open just before, yeah, the previous tournament and won that pretty comfortably, pretty convincingly. So he is turning up to the World Open um, looking good. Um, but as I say, I got on court. 
And it was just stepping on court in front of that crowd in Toulouse. I think there was something like 3,000 people watching us at the Palais de Sport in Toulouse. There was an enormous amount of people, um, uh, you know, all televised, uh, TV there. Jeez, it was just fantastic. The atmosphere, it really lent itself to um, a fantastic squash arena. Um, it was just, it was just great. That's and that sort of, that raised everything as well. Um, got on court, actually felt great. I uh, didn't feel tired at all. Um, and of course, I don't know how, but, um, <laughs> and I've relived it so many times, but I, I won the first game. And of course that, that, uh, that was what um, sort of propelled me on to, you know, going, keep going hard and uh, doing, you know, not changing my game, keep doing mm -hmm. the same thing. I uh, got through the second game, uh, won that as well, but very close. Um, and I thought, well, I've, I've literally made history here because <laughs> since he's been winning British Open titles and World Open titles, he hasn't never gone to five. So oh, I thought, that so? even if I lose this, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, even if I lose this, at least I've taken him to five in a World yeah. Open final. Um, That's that, that, and, that can be quite a destructive thought to have at that point as well. You know, yes, there's maybe a bit of pride to go, hey, I've done better than anyone's ever done against him. And there might be an acceptance that, hey, I can, you know, whatever happens is fine. So that could work both ways. But obviously it worked because you won the match. Can you just talk on that thought coming in and, and how you were able to process that? Sure. Well, you know, when I'd gone to love up, I just thought, you know, there's two ways of thinking. Like you say, you either think, right, I've done it. I'm okay now. It doesn't matter if I lose in five. Or this is a one chance in a lifetime here. You know, I may never make the world open final again i may have an injury where i don't ever play squash again i've really got to take this by the throat you know and 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 try and get the best result out of it i can so i went in there hard obviously um in that in that uh in the fourth game uh, sorry third game mm -hmm. um and it was level i think it was about five all and i thought wow i'm i'm only four points away from beating jahangir or winning a world title um and um and he ended up winning at uh, nine seven but it was close. Um, and then, of course, we'd been on court at that stage by about for about an hour 40. Um, and I started to get glimpses of, of him getting a little bit tired, uh, making uncharacteristic errors. And, um, and of course, you pick up on that. As a pro, you, you pick up on all those sort of signals um, where he was playing a shot he wouldn't normally play or he was a little bit slow on the pickup. Um, and, uh, and for some reason, I don't know whether it was adrenaline, um, the thought of actually winning um, that, that just really propelled me into, into the fourth game. And uh, yeah. I, I won that nine, one in about um, nine minutes, you know, Serious. so uh, wow. he was finished. So yeah, awesome. well, he was, he was certainly tired anyway. Yeah. And, and I think I did read somewhere as well that, that when you were getting close to that finish line, because then you can have those other thoughts coming in going, I'm so close now. And, you know, the glass arm comes in, you get the yips a little bit. Um, can you talk about the, the, the voices that were maybe happening then and, and how you were able to put things in place that, that didn't allow that to happen in that moment? Sure. So every, every point I won, I just thought, I said to myself, relax, you know, you're only... Uh, when they call, when the ref called the score out, I was, I was saying that I was, in my head, it was two points less. So when I was sort of five, one up, I was only three, one up. And when I was seven, one up, I was only five, one up. Um, um, and just, you know, playing games with yourself to, 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 to not get, you know, I've seen so many times in, in particularly tennis matches where people have choked, you know, they've actually got to a match ball and they just cannot finish it. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't want to 
want to do that, having come so close um, or being in a position of being close to winning it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to sort of um, 8-1, I, and they said match ball, I thought, well, hang on, I'm only at 7-1. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, it's obviously right and it's obviously working. Um, mm-hmm. Don't change your game. And uh, I didn't. I stayed fairly solid. And, uh, yeah, ended up talking about t- taking out the title in 9-1. Yeah. Did, you, did you win that first points at 8-1 or was there a few hand-in-hand-outs? Can you remember? It was a let. There was a let at eight one, um, and it was a genuine let. In fact, it could have been a stroke against me. So, uh, uh, yeah. Um, and and yeah. So, yeah. What, what comes to mind when you're explaining that and 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 what's going on? Yes, winning the world title, amazing. And I can imagine there's the feelings there, but equally so, actually turning and looking at Jahanga and knowing you've actually got him to the point where he's that tired, he's making uncharacteristic mistakes and decisions. That in itself must have been obviously foreign territory because not many people have ever seen that. And you being the one to do that, how did that feel when you did glance over and, and have maybe that thought, I've got him. I, I've actually got him to the point where he's he's gone here. I was never sure about it. <laughs> I, uh, I was hoping, seriously hoping that that was the case. But um, no, look, that was the first time I'd ever seen him uh, play what I'd term a desperate shot from him um, to see him a little bit slow on the pickup. Um, and that's the first time, not only for me on court with him, but him on court with anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was the first ever I'd ever seen him since I'd, since I'd seen him hit his first squash ball. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just amazing. I couldn't quite believe it. Couldn't quite believe it. You know, you obviously got to keep a a lid on it and play your own game, but, um, and keep that in the back of your mind. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was it. and you know that that adrenaline is an amazing thing um and it it it, it uh, you know when you think you're absolutely had it um adrenaline you see things like that and it just pumps more adrenaline through your veins you know it just really? gives you that much more energy to, to carry on and finish the job amazing well thanks so much for reliving that story because i've wanted to have that chat with you for quite a while um so yeah as just a pure fan that was just just brilliant to go in and probably leads me to my next few little bits of inquiry around your mental state and how you were able to possibly cultivate uh, this 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 mental toughness um you know having those voices in your head you know tricking yourself two points behind staying at it you know really turning up you know tournaments and by tournament performing so well where where do you think you got that mental toughness from? Was there a directed training towards your mental toughness side? Was there natural ability? Was it a combination of, of a few things? Could, could you could you talk on that, please? Yeah, I think I think to be honest, Jesse, you, you, you're kind of born with it, and things that happen in your life um, uh, help define your your personality, your character from it. I was always been, and not always a good thing. Uh, very tenacious about a lot of you know when when I should be letting things go and I don't um uh, you, that spills over into into sport and um you know where i was saying that jahangir uh got in and and, and broke quite a few people I, I was determined that he wasn't going to do that to me and to sort of stay in there and and be tenacious and and every time he beat me um you know learn from it um and you know the i think so i think you actually learn half of it and you're born with half of it as well mm-hmm. um um and it's 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 a difficult thing to describe really but um yeah, yeah you've just gotta 
yeah it's so that's uh, that that's where you know so much research has been done in 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 the modern time well like for quite a while now you know the nature nurture debate how much of this is a learned behavior how much of it is a complete natural state and you know i think everyone's getting to the fact there's a there's a combination of both some will have a more innate ability of being born with but can you think about maybe some of your younger days or your parental influence? Was, was there any part of your environment that fostered this idea of tenacity, as you say? Um, yeah, I think sort of, I really do think growing up in a small town um, really helps because you start off as a big fish in a small pond, you know, and, and they say there's a saying success breeds success, you know, and um, I, you know, I was successful in just the little town I was in. And then you go out to the big world, the bigger cities. And, and uh, because you've experienced success, then you want more of it. It's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's a drug. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, that's um, uh, that's kind of how it starts. Yeah. You learn it. Um, yeah, certain things happen in your life, I guess, that, that uh, you don't want to sort of let go of and you want to uh, make the most of. And, uh mm -hmm. Yeah, tough one to tough one to yeah. describe. Yeah, no, no, totally. And 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 I I've got no idea of the answer. And I just that that's what this whole process for me is is actually having these discussions and hearing just different perspectives of 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 different people and and just some really interesting things there. And yeah, maybe in reflection that that parachute accident, the uh, you know your innate tenacity, you know, or, or the stuff you'd learned, the small town vibe, the success, maybe that contributed to your, your mental toughness to get through that parachute accident and come out that other side really positive. And again, I don't think anyone's ever going to come up with the one answer that creates it, but I think there's a complete uh, it, it, experimentation and, and we've got to find ways to do it. Um, but looking at, at possibly your whole career here, and you can maybe pinpoint a couple of things, when you thought you were at your utter best, uh, you know, in a match and in that flow state and when, when, when you were playing at that, that peak of your abilities, what do you think activated this? What, what do you think contributed to you in that flow state? I think it's a combination of things. You can't always um, control it either. Um, you know, there's that term, the zone, when, you, when everything seems to be working mentally, physically, emotionally, um, everything, everything is working. Um, and the key is to work out, um, you're, you're trying to replicate things. So um, if you have a great win in a tournament, you actually then analyze it and think, well, what was my buildup? Uh, what was my attitude? It's a, you know, uh, emotional state, physical state, and you try and replicate that. However, that becomes really difficult because um, it's, I feel in terms of your whole career, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a moving target. Um, because it's hard to replicate uh, emotional states. It's hard to replicate um, physical uh, states in that um, you, uh, like I say, you're changing all the time. You're evolving. And, you know, what you used to do to win a tournament at 22 is completely different to what you'd have to do in your preparation uh, and playing uh, when, you're, when you're 32. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, you've got it. It's 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 a sort of um, uh, it's a sort of work in progress, if you like, um, trying to work out how you and this is where sports psychologists come into it. Um, uh, you know what what makes you tick, what what mm -hmm. motivates you, and and how to get the best out of someone. In those days, we didn't have sports psychologists. Um, I didn't have a coach. I had to do all that myself and and work out um, what what 
what motivated me um, and and how to get the best out of myself, you know. Um, but like I say, it's it's the blueprint for me to motivate me and get me going um, and winning tournaments might be totally different to mm. somebody else. So there is no blueprint, one one blueprint for for um, for success, if you like, yeah. in winning tournaments. Totally agree. Um, and, and that's, you know, obviously the emergence of the sports psychologists and people curious in this field, great, and it can help athletes discover themselves better and maybe more efficiently. But could could you pin, like not pinpoint, or can you give some examples of what you think? Because you, you alluded to the fact that, yes, winning tournaments and you had to figure it out yourself. Is there anything that comes to mind that you go, hey, actually, these things worked at this part of my career and, and contributed to the success? Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, status was a big thing for me, uh, ranking. Um, so if I was ranked, for example, seven in the world, I didn't want to lose to anyone, eight, nine, ten, and further down the line in the world. My targets were um, who was in front of me. Um, and so, you know, um, I think a mistake a lot of the players made was looking too far in front. You know, if they were sort of ranked 10 in the world, looking that top four and not behind them because guys would be picking you off uh behind you um uh while you were trying to concentrate too much on the guys in front of you so there's a balance there to be had so i'm curious to know and and, you know you alluded to the fact that there was no sports psychologist and you didn't work with anyone but did you ever perform any visualizations because that that that's a big part of of some of the training now and getting athletes to relive and rehearse certain situations tactically technically in matches did you go through a period of of ever visualizing certain things when you were competing yes definitely that was that was part of the uh, preparation really um and that started from the minute you won your your previous match so if you came off at four o'clock on a tuesday um from then on through to your ne- next match on your on Wednesday, you would actually that's when your preparation would begin from the end right. of your your last match, or uh, leading up to your first match. Um, and the visualization was a was a big thing. Um, one thing I used to do, and I'm not sure if anyone else ever did that, was that um, I would pick up on my last match and just think where could I improve on that. Mm-hmm. I used to make um, written notes um, and just have uh, two or three bullet points. Um, for me to go into the match the next day, considering who I was playing, because we all knew each other. We all played each other so many times before. Um, Very rarely did you play someone that you'd never played before in a pro tournament. Um, And, you know, there would be sort of only two or three bullet points. I I believe that the sign of, you know, the the marks of a good coach is when they come down and advise them between games, not to give them too much information. You know, um, one or two points, uh, we'll keep them going. It's the old story. If you give someone 20 things to think about, uh, to, to, to recall, they won't recall any. But if you give them two, they'll remember those two. Um, so I used to write down just two, maybe three things where I felt I, could, I feel I could improve. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be going through a stage where I'm starting very slowly and taking a while to get into the game. Then one of those bullet points would be to start fast, you know, and get, get in there right from the, the minute they call out uh, level play. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, you know, just little uh, points like that. I used to do that and that used to help me enormously. Um, and also staying pretty much away from people half an hour before you match. I know Jahangir used to go in the change rooms and people would be following him around the whole time. And he used to find, you know, a bit of peace and quiet actually in, in, in a toilet. I think that was in his uh, in one of his books where he used to just lock himself in there, just sit yeah. down on the toilet seat and just, just keep away from everyone for, for 10 minutes anyway mm-hmm. to collect his 
thoughts and uh, to get them mentally prepared and, and then to go for it. Mm. But um, yeah, so each person used to have their own individual sort of, and, and those sort of little notes I used to make were, were sitting mine. You know? Yeah, I, I love note taking. It's, it's a big thing I am I'm really encouraging with some other players is, is be reflective. You know, you've got to, you've got to be your own, your own coach. Don't, I'm not going to be there telling you stuff every match and in between every game. You can't just rely and lean on me so much. I can signpost you. So yeah, like all the players I work with, I get them to journal after a match, you know, when the emotions are coming down as well, you don't want to do it immediately after a match because your emotions might be all a bit wrong. But that, that journaling process for me is powerful, reflective. But like you said, I, I love that bit you said about as soon as that last match finishes and you've won it, you're already preparing for that next match. It's, it's like, right, I've done that. Yes, you might reflect on that match, but it's right. Where can I go with this future one? And yeah, so it's, it's, it's you know, stuff that people were doing before sports psychologists. You know what? I think sports psychologists have come in and, you know, put labels on it. Great. And, and, and made it more formalized. Great. And we need that. But yeah, I think a lot of this, this work is being from previous, you know, athletes from all sports like yourself doing it. Um, so I'm also curious to, to understand or, or see if you can recall throughout your career, you know, great long career, amazing, right at the top end of the game. Were there any matches that came to mind where mental toughness played a huge part? You know, yes, the World Open final, but I'm almost more thinking on the inverse where things aren't going well. Um, you know, you're maybe losing to someone you shouldn't do. Where, where could you pinpoint any matches where that mental toughness really went? Yes, this, this really made me get through that match. Okay, so my attitude in those days when I was actually down, I should have been winning um, or was hoping to win, um, and I was losing the match. Um, it's, I, I like to keep things very, very simple. My, my, my game plan was simple. Um, like I say, I had a couple of preparation bullet points just to, 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 to remember, and I'd get on and, and do my best. Um, but, yeah, one, one, one way I used to deal with if I was losing, say I was 2-1 down and maybe – five, one down. Uh, this is when it was played up to nine and it looked the way the score was heading that I was going to lose. Basically, my attitude was that um, I'm probably going to lose, but I'm going to make it as hard as I possibly can for the guy to beat me. Mm. Um, so many times I've been on court and I thought, well, I, I didn't really win that match. Uh, the guy lost it for me. You know, he just, he capitulated and just lost. Um, I don't want to do that. And I would say more often than not, when I took that attitude of making it just so, so hard for someone to every point they earned, um, every point they got on the board, they really had to earn, it turned it around and I ended up taking a win from it. Mm. Um, uh, so psychologically, that's a game you play with yourself. But um, And, you know, other times where you'd make it really, really hard um, and, and you'd end up still losing. Um, but at least you gave it a shot. You mm. couldn't carry on the way you were going because that was a losing game or that was a losing scoreline, if you like. Yeah. Uh, you weren't going to win. So, um, you know, you, you've got to do something different. Um, mm. Don't leave it too late. And then either just go back to basics or, you know, as I say, make it really, really hard for the guy. Um, and sometimes that would, that would turn, the, uh, turn the match around on its head and uh, yeah. end up with the result. Really, really good advice. It's, it's, you know, advice that, yes, I think we can say to players and, and we got to, you know, in my opinion, I'm trying to cultivate that more often. But I also like what you said there at the end, just picking up on one of those points. If you actually lose that match, but you have done everything you can and, you know, your opponent has had, had to earn every single point, 
you can actually leave a mental scar on them for a future match. They they possibly know going, oh, I'm, pl- I'm playing Ross Norman again. He just made my life a misery. If he's 5% off on that day, that's where you can come through completely. So I also like that idea about leaving future scars on opponents and not even that opponents, but someone else might see that match and go, Oh man, if I'm playing Ross, he's just, he's like a dog with a bone. He just doesn't go away. And yeah, that for me is, is such a, such a powerful mindset to cultivate and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it came relatively natural to you that this was a bit of a natural default setting. Would you say in, in your mindset when you were playing? Yeah, it's kind of more of a survival tactic, really, than anything else. And like, and and it's interesting what you said was that, um, yeah, you you want to leave these guys that that end up sort of beating you, and when you lose, um, when you perhaps shouldn't have or possibly shouldn't have, um, to let them know that they've been on court with you, that they're not going to be worth much the next day because of the hard match they've just had, mm-hmm. and if they want to beat you again the next time they play, this is what they're going to have to do, mm-hmm. um, and and this is the this is the sort of pain they're going to have to go through as as as. I will probably have to, um, but yeah, you're you're leaving that that you are never ever going to lay down, lie down, and you are never, no one's ever going to come come off court um, thinking, well, that was pretty straightforward. That was pretty yeah. easy, you know. Um, by putting by putting everything in and making it making it tough for you know, and I also sort of uh, respected people doing that to me because I knew that 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 I, I was knowing at the time that, that they were doing that. I was thinking, wow, that was that was a tough finish. You know, I was pleased to get over the finishing line there. That was tough. Because in my mind, the next time I play them, I, I'm thinking about that last four or five points of the match, yeah. you know, thinking, wow, I'm going to have to go through, I'm going to have to repeat all, all that to, to, to sort of pull a win out of here, you know. Yeah, it, may, it maybe alludes a little bit to them, you know, how you said Jahanga used to break people, you know, and actually when you said that, part of me thought you can, well, Jahanga possibly, you as well, would break people even before they've walked onto court with you. They, they've already made up their mind going, goodness me, this is, I'm going to have to go through hell and back to get through this match. And if someone is just in the wrong state of mind at that point, or they just something external has happened to them, that could just be the difference between you winning three to a big hard match or completely beating them three love in 25 minutes. So yeah, I think, I think once you set that benchmark and you're continually rising to that benchmark in, in a mental state, that's, that's just a lovely place to be sitting, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, and uh, going back to Jahanga days, I mean, that's what he used to do. He used to, you know, you used to come on and, and you were in the zone as far as your, your personally, your game was, but, um, and you still come off with a three love, uh, loss or perhaps if you're really lucky a 3-1 loss um, and he used to do that I couldn't do that I didn't have that sort of effect maybe I did maybe I had more of an effect on on on, on other players than, than I thought I did but um, uh, you know nothing to that extent I mean yeah. man he was you could play your best game that you've ever played in your life and come off and you've been just beaten really? through love by, oh, by your hanging so he had that effect on people yeah. Uh, but yeah I, I think that um uh, you know, people, uh, if you take that attitude of, of letting everyone know that you, you know, you're a tough player and that um, you don't give, you don't give anything, then um, that, that's got to be worth a game or two in any match. Love it. Uh, you, you, you're speaking my language here, Ross. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's great of someone of, you know, your caliber and your history to be able to speak like that and, and pass the message on to hopefully people who are listening and, and, and enjoying the conversation we had. Um, you've been really generous with your time today. I've got a couple more little questions to eke out of you, um, bringing it a bit more into the, into the modern game. So do you, do you actually get much chance to watch the modern game or are you a fave with the modern game at the moment? I do follow the, the, the game, 
um, at the moment. Um, mm. You know who's up there, results, etc. I get all those um, on the on the websites. Okay. Um, but um, you know, I do get to go down and see sometimes uh, spectate the the top yes. guys. There are a few top guys I haven't seen play. Mm-hmm. Um, I was playing master squash up until five years ago. So at the British Open, of course, you get to see the see the guys play alongside you know uh, when you were playing. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, no, look, I'm still interested. Crikey, it's in my blood, you know. Yeah. And uh, I was married to the job for probably 18 years, yeah. so uh, I'm, I'm not going to uh, uh, you know I'm not going to suddenly uh, just be totally disinterested in it. I will be till uh, of course. You know. And 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 when when you do see the modern players now, what how would you describe the game? Obviously, it's evolved with technology and the rackets. The scoring's changed. The tins changed. Yeah. What, what what comes to mind when you're watching these modern players go at each other and and you know it's sometimes not fair to compare generations, but anything come to mind when you do watch them? Yeah, I think, um, and, and I think this could be said about just about any sport um, when television gets involved, um, they do make the sport look a lot better and it looks a whole lot better now. It's been just totally transformed uh, now from when it was sort of 25, 30 years ago. Um, and that is fantastic because, um, you know, we're trying to sort of sell the sport. Um, the sooner it gets into the Olympic games, the better. And I think it, 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 it will one day. I don't know when, but um, it has to one day. It has to, um, really. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I think it has to. Um, I, well, you can't – there's no genuine reasons why it won't be. Um, but uh, today, yeah, look, this, this sport today, it's, it's dynamic. It's interesting. Um, the players have got, you know, uh, great personalities. Um, there's some exciting matches, I think, with, uh, with all the Egyptians up there. There's uh, really, really good squash how long that's going to last, whether it's cyclical like it was in, in my day where, you know, when I turned pro, you had Jeff Hunt at the top and then six Pakistanis under him mm-hmm. um, and then a, an array of sort of uh, Brits and South Africans, New Zealanders, et cetera. Um, uh, that all changed. Um, whether this will change in Egypt I don't, I, or yeah. not, I don't know. But uh, it's an exciting, it's an exciting game to watch, and uh, and the players really do make it, make it good. And and what um, are, you, are you enjoying your fellow <coughs> your fellow Kiwi causing some upsets, and you know Paul Cole doing some damage against the world rankings? And what's what's your final thoughts on on him and and where he's at? Do you do you speak to him ever out of interest? I've spoken to, I met Paul once down at St. George's, um, Phil, when he won that first tournament. I mm. think he was, he was ranked outsider and he won the first yeah. $100,000 $100, tournament. A uh, big tariff moment in the final three love. Um, that was a great win from him. I think that was a springboard into getting in the top sort of four and five in the mm. world. I think Paul's still, still got, um, uh, um, he's still got more potential that hasn't been sort of tapped. I think he's going to become a better player. Um, time he need he obviously needs to think about the time because um, I think he's about I think he's twenty eight or twenty nine now. Um, yeah, I mean players still keep playing until they're sort of thirty five, thirty six, but uh, it it gets tough, it gets hard, <laughs> and um, I, I just think it's not if he makes his move. He's obviously been trying for for years, but um, I think if he just hangs in there long enough and um, and goes in hard enough like he is. Um, um, then he may just uh, pull off a, a, a big title, and I'd, you know, more than anyone else, love to see him do that. Yeah. Um. He's he's sitting at four in the world at the moment, um, mm. and a clear four as well. It is. Um. So he's just got to, you know, um, 
you know, funny things happen in tournaments. Exactly. Um, well, and you, you, can, you can testify to it, can't you? You know, World Open, Jahanga Khan, 1986 is like, hey, the odds look like they were stacked against you, but you just kept putting yourself in the mixer time and time again. And yeah, just, I just love that one quote or that mantra you, you do use about, you know, you're going you're gonna to keep your benchmark here. And, you know, one day Jahanga is going to have an off day and you're going to get him on, on that possibly off day. And yeah, it sounds like Paul Cole could take some real good, uh, not good advice. I'm not telling the guy what to do, of course, but you're just listening to that and keeping himself in the mixer, which looks like he is. He's physically a machine. And yeah, I like that he's coming in and he's very different to all the Egyptians. You know, you've got the the naturalness, the flair of the Egyptians, almost like the Brazil football players. There, there's, a, there's a naturalness to what they do. And you've got Paul and even a guy like Joel Macon, maybe a bit more traditional style players, you know, like really physically strong and hard. And yeah, it's just, it's great to see that, that, that mix coming in. Um, yeah. And that's what, and, and that's what I like about Paul most, I, I think is, is his tenacity, you know, um, and that's, I had a lot of that um, when I was um, sort of up there in the world rankings that, you know, he's got the game that could match the top guys. Um, and he's just got to be carry on, continue being tenacious because his time, his time may come, it may not come, but um, uh, it may come as well. And that uh, you know, if he's still tenacious and he's still there, um, and and as we we're saying before, that um, you know, no one comes off playing against Paul thinking, well, that was fairly straightforward. Very, very rarely do does he have a match that lasts under an hour, hour and a quarter. You know, yeah. so it leaves it with these guys that if they turn up a bit tired and they've got to play Paul, um, that you know, it's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt them to, to, to sort of beat them. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a nice sort of thought to have in the back of your mind. So he's just got to stay in there. He's got to just keep doing what he's doing. And, um, um, look, you know, a victory might, uh, might be on the horizon for him. Brilliant. Ross, some really wise words there to, to close on. And, and, you know, I think the, the people I work with that listen to this and people outside I work with, I'm sure are going to extract so much from this conversation we've had, uh, reliving some of those memories, really getting into, into the nitty gritty of your mind. Um, I'm, I'm certain it's going to inspire people to look at the game and look at themselves in a slightly different way, in a more positive way. So, for me to you, a huge thank you for spending your time here today. Um, like I've alluded to, I'm sitting here as a fan and just feel really honored to be able to have this chat with you. Um, and yeah, listen, hopefully, are you going to play Masters again? Are you going to get back into that? Or do you think that's done for you for now? I think that's gone for me now. Yeah. So what, I, what happened a few years ago, I was playing tennis um, and that's my other sport. Um, and I snapped my Achilles tendon. Oh. And uh, even though it took, it did take 12, 15 months to, to get over it, it's back to normal now. I'm back playing tennis, but it's just something about squash that my knees and hips don't like. And um, uh, you know, it, uh, it, I'd love to get back on court. And if my body would let me, um, I would, but um I feel that uh, <laughs> I still want to be running around and doing other things when I'm sort of 75, 80. And if I carry on playing squash, I perhaps won't. So yeah. I'm probably going to just get on court and just just hit the ball without running around or competing. But uh, yeah, look, it's it's in your blood, like mm -hmm. I say before. And it's uh, squash, is, it's a fantastic game. And it's, it's uh, um, you know, I've loved it for a long time. Amazing. And listen, I hope I get to see you down St. George's Hill one day soon. Um, we'll hopefully cross paths in that squash world. Good luck with the property development. Um, all of that sounds amazing and you sound like you're loving it to bits. Thank you very much, Ross Norman. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jesse. We really enjoyed it. Presence. Process. Persistence. The essence of Squash Mind.